Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for songs that can really help us and speak to us and teach us. Father, thank you that Sundays have become so good to us. God, today's a beautiful day. You've given us sunshine and nice weather. And from that perspective, God, it's set out to be a great day. Father, our hearts need more than good weather. We need your nearness. So we've come here on a Sunday morning, God, ready to hear your word opened up and explained and spoken to us, Father, because your word gives life. We pray now, God, that you give us hearts and minds to receive it well, that you would increase our faith, God, that we would believe you. Father, we thank you for a Savior, Jesus, who paid it all. And our life is in Him. And we pray that today, God, you would draw us to Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, please turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 929 in the pew. 929 in the pew Bible. Mark chapter 9. There's a tendency when you're involved with something that you get real passionate and uh, have some strong feelings about wanting that thing to go well. When you become a fan of a team, you want them to win, and you become a part of an organization, you want it to do well, you want it to thrive, you want there to be success there, and that's all, that's all well and good, and we, we're, we're, we're thankful for people that are that way. But... Sometimes naturally, when those type of desires and emotions come, then also come kind of some negatives towards those who are a part of something different. And y'all know what I'm talking about. It's not altogether bad, but it can be, right? Some of y'all who like U of L just like to see UK lose. And some of y'all like UK just like to see U of L lose. Doesn't really matter. It's not affecting your team, but you kind of get these negative feelings towards something that you're not a part of, and it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Again, those aren't altogether bad, but you know what I mean. It can be. It's good to have good, strong passions and desires for the thing that you're a part of, but we've got to be careful with those negative desires that come up towards things that we're not a part of. Well, sometimes this carries over into the church, doesn't it? Sometimes this carries over into our faith, into Christianity. And we see that so well from church to church or from denomination to denomination. It's a big problem. It's destructive to the kingdom of God. It's divisive to Jesus' church. And today in our passage... We're going to hear Jesus in a very direct and strong way rebuke John and and call him back to the perspective that you and I ought to have. Y'all, we're not here, listen to me, in the name of God to bring glory to ourselves. We're not here under the identity of Jesus as Christians to make ourselves look better. We are here with one 
grand purpose to worship God. We are here to worship God, to bring God glory. That's our purpose. And however God is working in us, around us, or without us, for His glory, we rejoice. We rejoice in that. And I know that it is a struggle for all of us to think that way, but that's the way we are to think. Christianity and church and the the worship of God is in a category separate from everything else. We may see some parallels to your organization, to your school, or to your business, or to your neighborhood, or to your community, or to your team, or, or anything like that. There may be some parallels, but they're not exactly the same. And Jesus and his church have the high singular purpose of him being worshipped. For you to be a part of this is to be about that. And today in Mark chapter 9, in just a few verses, we're going to see that. Now I wanted really, really badly to preach today all the way to the end of the chapter. I'm in a hurry to get to it because next week, and I hope you'll be here, no matter what gets in the way next week, make sure you're here. Jesus is about to get real serious about sin, and you and I need to hear that talk, okay? We ought to be scared of sin. You ought to be convicted of sin. You ought not be flirting with sin or joking around with sin or making excuses for sin. It's bad, and he's going to tell us that next week. So you need to be here, okay? Matter of fact, bring somebody with you. Then the week after that, you can see there at chapter 10, Jesus is teaching on divorce. And you really need to hear that. We need to hear what Jesus says about divorce. It's not to be taken lightly. Real talk from God and His Word, and we're not going to miss it. So make plans to be here next week and the, and the week after. I'm eager to get to those passages, and I wanted to just jump right into it and go 38 to the end of the chapter today, but I didn't because I think this little single passage needs our attention. Read with me here at chapter 9, 38 to 41, just a few verses. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's an interesting passage. It's even more interesting when you know what's been happening in Mark already. Chapter 9, following up with chapter 8, has brought lots of stuff to our attention. The passage begins with John saying something to Jesus, and we're very familiar with who John is, right? We're very familiar that John is that one in the inner circle of Jesus' twelve. He's inside the three. We know that it is Peter and John that are the two atop of the twelve that seem to be the most. Peter's the the leader and the most outspoken, but John seems to be the one that, that, that looks like he's the most poised. John is the one in the whole Gospel of John referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John here says something that should shame Shame us all. 
John was here in chapter 9, the very beginning of chapter 9, in the transfiguration. John is one who just in this chapter was on top of the mountain when Jesus was transfigured into the complete, full, Shekinah glory of God there on the mountain in front of Peter, James, and John and brought the old saints, Moses and Elijah there. John was there. And he understood all so well that life is about Jesus. And here we see John and his sinful, selfish nature coming out. I only want to talk about two things today. First, the selfish conceit and the sovereign control. The selfish conceit of John and the disciples and the sovereign control of Jesus the King. The selfish conceit, if you will, of those who are involved in religion or church. The selfish conceit of those who mean well. And then the sovereign control of the one who works all things together for the good. The sovereign control of the one who is head of the church. The sovereign control of the one who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Jesus. We see a big difference here between the selfish conceit of John and the sovereign control of Jesus. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. If we were to stop there, this sounds awesome, doesn't it? This is, a, this is a good thing. There's healing being done. There is miraculous. There is the miraculous. There are miracles being done in the name of Jesus, and that is good. That's a good thing. Let me remind you that the disciples have already been sent out to do that, and at times they have already done it here in the Gospel of Mark. But let me also remind you that in chapter 9, there was already a problem because the disciples were supposed to be casting out names, and they were not able to. Look back at chapter 9. Verse 18, remember there's a boy with an unclean spirit, he's demon-possessed, he's on the ground, he's having seizures, seizures, and there's a demon with him, and the father comes, and he asks Jesus to help. But look at verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, and look at this, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It was something that the disciples have done before, and perhaps something they should have, could have done here, but they're not able to. And so John should have known that the casting out of of, of demons is is a good thing, especially in the name of Jesus. But perhaps John's a little bit bothered that what they could not do, they have now found somebody who is doing it. And John is bothered by it. And so he comes, if you will, he comes, if you will, A little bit like a tattletale. Hey, Jesus, we found somebody who's doing things that we're not doing, and he's not with us. And as you all know from when your kids were in preschool, don't tattletale. What's John's problem here? It already has me feeling uncomfortable just knowing that he's saying this sort of thing. We tried to stop him. In what capacity should Christians be trying to stop people from doing things? That's a good question, isn't it? In what capacity should the religious people who love and follow God and know what He has said is right or wrong, in what capacity should we be trying to stop people from doing things? Well, that's a good discussion that we'll save for another sermon, but certainly not if it's in the name of Jesus and for the good of the world. But John misses that. Commentator Edward says, as is true of many religious traditions, 
so also in this instance, the founder shows himself to be more broad-minded than the sectarian inclinations of his disciples. May we hear that warning today. That you and I are not more rigid and more complicated and more judgmental and more problematic toward people than our Lord Jesus himself. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Well, why? Why, John? Why did you try to stop him? Look what he says next. Because he was not following us. He was not following us. You ever heard somebody say, that's not the way we do it around here? You ever heard somebody say, we've always done it this way. John's comment just sounds dirty, doesn't it? I'm uncomfortable reading it. It's, it the, the tension is there. Hey, Jesus, this guy's doing great things for your glory. He's helping people in your name. But we tried to stop him because he's not doing it the way we do it. Not doing it the way we do it. The selfish conceit is there, right? The selfish conceit is there. The commentator Edwards goes on to say, in complete disregard of the lesson of the preceding story, John regards his call as a disciple, listen to this, not as a call to service, but as an entitlement of privilege and exclusion. Do you remember what the sermon was on last week? Just before this, there is an argument among the disciples about who is the greatest. Isn't that embarrassing enough? They have, they're having an argument traveling on the way about who's the greatest. And Jesus asks them, what are y'all talking about? And they don't even answer, but Jesus is the greatest. And so Jesus answers what they're talking about without them telling what he's talking about. And Jesus says this to them. He sits them down and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he gives them the great illustration of being humble like a child and how you receive children. He had just told them that the greatest in the kingdom of God is for you to be the lowest, for you to be the least, for you to be the servant. And now, in the very next verse, verse 38, John speaks up and says, Jesus, I found somebody who's not acting like us and I tried to stop him. The pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, the disregard for Jesus being able to lead his church the way Jesus wants to. The selfish conceit is there. As he says, the entitlement of privilege is there. The entitlement and exclusion is there. They're wanting to keep people out because they're not doing it that way. He goes on to say this is depressingly ironic. If there was a problem, listen to me, if there was a problem that you wanted to stop somewhere, the very clear reason of why you would want to stop them was because they're not doing it in Jesus' name. They're not doing it in God's way according to God's word. They're not doing it for God's glory. Those are the flags, that the red flags or black flags that jump up, right? If somebody's doing a work not for Jesus, not according to the Bible, not according to truth, not for the glory of God, then that is a concern to us. And we want to get in the way and we want to try to stop and correct and do what we can. And you would expect it, again he says it's depressingly ironic, you would have expected that John would have said, we tried to stop him, which we would have been wrong, but we tried to stop him because he was not following you, Jesus. He's doing miracles that he's saying are in your name, but he's not a follower of you, and so we've got a problem. 
And you and I all know people who are trying to do Christianity. Listen to me. They're trying to do Christianity. They're trying to do God. Perhaps they're even trying to do church. They try to do Bible, Bible studies, but they're not really even followers of Christ. They haven't humbled themselves before Him. They haven't bowed their knee. They haven't confessed their sins. They haven't repented of their sins. They have not set their eyes fully on Christ and said, all to Jesus I surrender. They haven't done that. And so you and I are very skeptical and raise questions about everything that they're doing, even things that look good or even things that look like they're producing fruit, because it doesn't seem to us that they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would raise questions. And you would have expected that that's what John was going to try to say. Hey, it looks like this guy's doing good things. He's kind of got it under the umbrella or the category of church or Christianity, like we know all types of people that do today. But he is not a follower of Christ according to your word. He's not repentant of his sins. He hasn't humbled himself. But John doesn't even say that. The selfish conceit is here. He said he's not following us. At best, he's put himself with Jesus and said Jesus and the disciples. At worst, he's meaning just the disciples. And that's ugly. A selfish conceit. How do you do with things like this? How do you do when somebody's doing things in the name of God or in the name of Jesus or in the name of church? How do you do with that if it's not about your church? Or not about your denomination? What if it's not Baptist or First Baptist? What if it's not here in Fairdale? Or what if it's not the Southern Baptist Convention? How do you do with that? Do you have friends or family that go to a different church or a different denomination? Do you have friends or family that have some differences for you? Do you mock them? Do you shrug your shoulders at them? Do you tear them down? Do you strive against them? Is the selfish conceit rising up? Do you say to them, hey, I'm trying to stop you? Do you say to God, hey, I'm trying to stop them? When God in your guilty conscience answers back, do you say, because they're not doing it the way we do it? Do you look down upon somebody because they don't do it the way we do it? This is John's problem, and it is very troublesome. This is yet another echo of their inflated self-importance. Another commentator rightly notes the absurdity, listen, of the twelves of the twelves telling the independent exorcist, that's what he calls him, the independent exorcist to stop doing what they could not do earlier in the chapter. They're selfish. There's a problem here. How do you think about people that are different from you? What if they speak different or act different? What if their churches are different? What if their procedures are different? What if they sing louder songs or softer songs? What if they don't sing? What if it's their conviction that you shouldn't use instruments and so they always sing a cappella without instruments? How do you speak of them? The selfish conceit coming out of John hits close to home. So he says he was not following us. And then Jesus answers back, and don't we love that? People are often raising questions and raising concerns about Christianity. And to be honest, when you look around church or the world today or missions or schools and just 
anything and everything under the umbrella of Jesus, there are a lot of questions and concerns, aren't there? We've all got questions and concerns. And sometimes we get the answer from Jesus, and sometimes we don't. His word addresses a lot of it, most of it, but sometimes it doesn't. But in this instance, we see a selfish, conceited comment from John, and in verse 39, Jesus answers back, and it is a strong one. Do not stop him. You love this about a good leader, don't you? Jesus is willing, when he needs to, to just say straight up, no, go against his best followers. You might would say this is the captain of the team. You ever known a coach who was willing to call out or rebuke or chastise or punish the captain of the team? Does your boss ever get on the the, the boss underneath him? John here is the top of the twelve. He's there along with Peter, and he says, Jesus, we tried to stop him. And Jesus says, don't you stop him. Don't you stop him. Jesus says the exact opposite thing that John was hoping and expecting Jesus to say. Jesus goes against him. Let me remind you that the church and Christianity does not need anybody. We have a Lord and King and God and Savior in sovereign control of what he's doing with his kingdom. And he does not need any of us to make it happen. He will make it happen. He will always, always, always be able to take people and humble them before God and use them the way he wants to. If we are to do anything of getting in the way, then he will quickly get us out of the way. God is working for his glory. And even the apostle John, when he says something that is out of line, that is judgmental, that is arrogant, that is conceited, Jesus turns around and rebukes him and says, don't you stop him. I bet the other 11 disciples were shook when that happened. I get to coach, my boys are six, seven, and nine right now, and I get to coach or try to coach them in some of the sports that they play, soccer, baseball, and basketball, and it's hard for kids to grow up in sports. There's a lot of challenges. And, you know, there's always some kids that are advanced and some kids that aren't and some kids that are there in the middle. And so it's hard. And it's hard for kids to grow tough. It really is. You know? Y'all are tough because you've lived through the hard times and you've, you've grown into being tough, but you're not born tough. You know what I mean? You've got to kind of go through some battles and some up and downs and some losses and some falling and all of that before you get tough. Take, for instance, baseball, right? Baseball is really hard to get started with, and as soon as you roll out to practice, you tell a boy to put his glove on, he's probably never thrown before, and you tell a guy to get about 20 feet from him, and they just start throwing this solid, hard ball back and forth. Well, you got one kid who can catch and throw pretty good, and he's got a strong arm. you got another kid who's never really done it. Next thing you know, he's like throwing bullets at him. And it's almost a matter of fact that the kid's going to say, hey, coach, he's, he's throwing it too hard. And he's kind of wanting you to say, all right, hey, buddy, Soften it up a little bit. But you know it's not going to help the kid. When it comes off a bat, it's not softened up a little bit, is it? And the only real answer for the kid is, better learn to catch it. That's what you got the glove for. I mean, that's the answer. That's not harsh. That's not mean coaching. That's the answer. Well, that's why you got a glove. I didn't put you out there with a bare hand. That's what the glove's for, right? And that's the way it goes. In basketball, you see it all the time. you got one kid who's more aggressive than everybody else, and so all the soft kids start saying, I can't do anything. He's playing so hard. And the only answer is, okay, well, then just lose to him. Or try harder. Or get tougher. Or match his intensity. That, that's the answer. 
And sometimes we don't like what the answer is, but sometimes we need to hear the answer. And if you're going to be a good follower of Jesus Christ, one who understands it, listen to me. You're not following Jesus on your terms according to your preferences or the way it's always been. You need to look to the Word and look to the Word daily and be in church on Sunday and grow and grow and grow on what the King's kingdom is like and humble yourself to see if you're willing to surrender to the kingdom. Or Jesus has no problem saying, you're not fit for the kingdom. Jesus has no problem to tell somebody, you're not fit for the kingdom. The apostle John walks up to him and says, this guy's over here doing things and healing people, and he's doing it in in, in your name, and we tried to stop him. He's not following us. And Jesus says, don't you stop him. Tell that brother to keep going. Tell him to keep doing it in my name. Let the fame spread. Let him keep helping people. Let it go, let it go, let it go. John was put in his place. In other words, John had to recalibrate what he thinks about things being done in the name of Jesus. John had to recalibrate what he thinks about the kingdom of God spreading and advancing without John. Works being done without the twelve. About a year ago, I got a call from a guy who is a pastor at Southeast Christian Church. Everybody here knows Southeast Christian Church, right? Big, awesome church here in Louisville, Kentucky. A few years ago, they built and set up a church in the south end, and y'all are familiar with that too, right? Right over here off Dixie Highway, St. Andrew's Church Road, right there at Christian Academy Southwest. And I got a, past, a pastor from there called me up, big, nice church. They already run over to thousands, tons of people there. And he called and asked if we could go out to lunch, and I said, I said sure. But for the record, if anybody wants to take me out to lunch, I'll go, no matter who it is. <laughs> and so I said, yeah. And so we went, and listen to what he said. He says, Southeast Christian is concerned that we, be, that we may be making it all about us. Southeast Christian is concerned that people may be thinking that it's all about us. And it ain't all about us. It's about Jesus. He said, so every campus that Southeast Christian Church has now has devoted a full-time pastor, full salary, to do nothing for Southeast Christian Church. My job is to find other pastors and encourage you and make you a better pastor. He said Southeast Christian Church wants Josh Green and First Baptist Fairdale to be the best and most healthy church you can be. And he said, no strings attached. My job is to help you however I possibly can. Is that good? That's good. He said, no strings attached. He said, y'all need more people? We'll send y'all some people. He said, do y'all have a project that y'all are trying to do that you just can't afford? Let me know. Maybe we'll help y'all do that. He said, do you need to go on a a staff retreat with us? We'll pay for that. We'll help you go. In the last year, he's invited me and Val on a free staff retreat to go with their staff. Southeast Christian recognizing it ain't about them. And for anybody to think that just because they're a part of Southeast Christian means they're good with God is wrong. And they understand that. It's only about Jesus. And any selfish conceit that comes out of them or us or you or me or or anybody else in between where we start thinking more about us, we need to hear the king's call to get rid of that and surrender to that. And Jesus tells John, don't you stop him. Let him keep going. It's awesome. It's awesome. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, we hear something similar to this. It says, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. I point that out to say that what's key in this passage is that he's doing it in Jesus' name. I'm not to say at all that we're to get weak in our doctrine or weak in what we believe. It is always about Jesus. And you and I hesitate and we get concerned and we throw up our hands if anything starts to be done not for Jesus. We exist to proclaim Jesus. That's our focus. That's our goal. That's our mission here as a church. And even in this passage, it is in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus says, let it go. He says, thus, works and wonders in Christ's name are evidence of the call and commission of Christ. And fellow disciples should be cautioned against thinking ill of those who bear such fruit. He goes on to say this, this saying shows the master, listen, to be more inclusive than his disciples. John's saying, stop him. Jesus saying, don't stop him. The making known of his name, listen to me, is more important than their distinctions. Folks, may God guard us from being more about us than we are about him. May God guard you to being more about our church than we are about Jesus' work. May God guard us from that. Look back to verse 39. Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, in many places in the Bible, you kind of have the reverse of this being said, but not here. Here he's pointing out that if he's doing it in my name, then we're not bothered by that. But it raises some issues, doesn't it? It raises the idea and the thought that, listen, that Jesus and his twelve are out there doing the work. And and to be honest, that's what the majority of the Gospels are about. So you and I kind of have tunnel vision on the kingdom of God and the work of the cross being done, or the ministry of the cross being done by Jesus and the twelve. But if they're out preaching and teaching and doing all this, then there must have been or should have been, or at least this passage says there were, some other people doing the work. And that's a cool thought. We don't think about that much, do we? That's a really cool thought. And Jesus is now challenging them that, hey, yeah, this is a possibility. He goes on to say, whereas there can be no neutrality with regard to the person of Jesus, the disciples must be tolerant to those who differ from them. In other words, here's what I mean. There are churches that do it way different than us. Are we glad? Yes. Are people coming to Christ? Yes. Are they preaching the gospel? And if so, are we glad? Yes. What if it's God's great plan? What if it's God's great plan for God to use a different church right here in Fairdale to raise up many, many people and young people in the next generation for them to know Jesus and to advance the kingdom? Are we okay with that? Yes. Absolutely we are. We're not here for us. We're here for God. We're here to do what God tells us to do. And in doing what God tells us to do, we'll leave the results up to Him, right? 
Do you remember early in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where there's a lot of controversy and debate and even division because they're worrying about who they're closest to? And some people are saying, well, I was baptized by Jesus himself. And some people say, well, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. And some people say, well, I was baptized by Peter. And some people say, I was baptized by Apollos. And there were these divisions. And people felt like they had a leg up or something depending on who they were closer to. And Paul speaks up and says, wait a second. I planted the seeds, Apollos watered the seeds, but in every case, God gave the growth. God gave the increase. This isn't about what servants God is using and which one you're closer to. It's really simple, y'all. It's is God in it or is God not? Is this for God or is it not? Is this for the worship of Jesus or is it not? And We see Jesus calling John back to this understanding Again, it's fascinating to me. Verse 39 says, or verse 40 says, the one who is not against us is for us. Verse 41, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus sees that in the way that somebody understands Jesus, and therefore treats somebody else in the service or work of Jesus, is a sign that they've got the right perspective. Jesus is showing us that unity is a big, broad thing that must be embraced. Now, the common denominator must be the gospel and holding on to Jesus. But as long as the gospel and holding on to Jesus is there, then there should not be as much division. There ought to be unity. And we are the ones who ought to understand this. J.C. Ryle speaking exactly to this. Says, here's a golden rule indeed, and one that human nature sorely needs and is too often forgotten. Men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party and denomination. They are so narrow-minded they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. They make an idol of their own peculiar ecclesiastical machinery and can see no merit in any other. He goes on to say, listen to this, better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. Isn't that a good quote? Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands in the name of Jesus than it not be done at all. Oh, that God would give us that heart. So I want to ask you here today in your faith, is there a selfish conceit about you? Is there an attitude like John's that People who do it differently or act differently are not on your team? Or is there a faith in the sovereign control of Jesus? Knowing what His church needs, knowing what His people needs, knowing what His standard is, and knowing what His call is. You know, the church is made up of the people. So to speak of any one of you as an individual is to speak of the church. And to speak of the church is to speak of everybody. The church isn't the place. The church is the people. And are we, to the world around us, to others, 
to Fairdale Christian down the road or Mount Holly Methodist this way? Do those churches see us as their brothers and sisters in Christ, as their teammates, as the ones working together with them? Are we united? And what does the world think? Being much smaller, are we willing to take on the attitude as my dear friend now at Southeast Christian Church who says, we don't care how God brings about the spread of his name. We just want him to. We just want him to. Interesting passage where Jesus speaks up and says, don't stop him. And John was rebuked there. Jesus is the head of the church. You know that. Jesus is the one who is able to speak to the church as the sovereign Lord. And Jesus is able to do that because we recognize him as not only the God of it all, but the God who came and sacrificed himself. You do understand, let me remind you, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the sovereign controller of his church. Is that person in that position because he is the one who came and gave up himself for his church? Y'all, Jesus died for us. Died on the cross for our sins. We get to know Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Our sins can be forgiven because he died for them. Any attitude of me or selfishness that might get in the way of his work needs to look back afresh at the cross, needs to humble itself to the one in sovereign control and say, Jesus, you paid it all. Jesus, you died for me. Jesus, you saved me from my sins. I want my life now to be in line with what you're doing. How is it that you view work in the name of Jesus? How is it that you look at people who are doing it differently? I want to end with this quote in regards to the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable, don't you? Young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know what the commandments are. And he names a few commandments and Jesus says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. You know that that's the second greatest commandment. The great commandment is to love God with all your heart. That's the greatest of all commandments. But the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus teaches that, the, the, the person speaks up, which is a very kind of like um, sneaky, prideful question. And he asks back, well, who's my neighbor? That's the question that is asked that results in Jesus teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to treat that way? And Jesus tells a story of a man who was traveling to Jerusalem, perhaps going there to worship. And on his way, he's jumped and, and beaten by, by robbers and bad guys, and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus says shortly after that, a priest comes walking by, sees him, jumps to the other side of the road, and keeps on walking. No concern, no, no heart to do anything for the man who had just been beaten and left for dead. The priest keeps going. Jesus says after that comes the Levite. And he comes, sees him, turns his head the other way, and keeps going. Priest, religious leader, Levite. And then Jesus says a Samaritan comes. Says the Samaritan, who's not supposed to be the one that you would think helping, sees him and has compassion on him. 
And so stops and takes care of him, helps him out. Jesus says, which one was the neighbor? One of my favorite quotes ever that I've got made into a poster in my office says, the Levite said, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? That's the question that you and I almost always ask. What will happen to me if I get in their world? He said, but the Good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to them? If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to them? It's an attitude. It's not so much about me. But it's an attitude It's about our God, our King. And when your focus becomes the King, you'll begin to move and function well in His kingdom. When your attitude stays about you and you're looking for ways for the King to kind of puff your world up, then you won't make any difference in the kingdom. It's a short little passage, isn't it? One that we perhaps could have glossed over and quickly gotten to the heavier stuff like next week. Let me remind you, church, we're not in this for us. We get the benefit of knowing God and there is joy in knowing Jesus. We are about living for God's glory. May we not get in the way. May we strive for unity. May we love anybody, anywhere doing work in the name of God of Jesus. When it comes to God's kingdom, may we truly be team players. May we have the heart of the Psalms that says, not to us, O God, not to us, but to you be the glory. May we really be Christ followers who view and treat others the way Christ did. May we be warned here from John not to be that way, but may we be encouraged by Jesus that whoever is not against us is for us. May we repent of a selfish conceit inside of Christianity, and may we find great strength, comfort, and motivation in the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this small little passage. And thank you, God, that we get to learn so clearly from John. God, thank you for warning us and making aware to us that anything that is truly religious, truly worship, truly Christianity is to be by faith in you and what you're doing. God, remove our selfish conceit and increase our faith in our sovereign Savior, Jesus. God, lead us to respond now In Jesus' name we pray, amen.